This is the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast with Fur Neiman. If you're looking to generate wealth and passive income in the lucrative world of mobile home parks, you're in the right place. You'll discover solutions to the common legal and operational pitfalls and how to optimize parks to maximize income. Your host is in the trenches. He's a real estate attorney, financial analyst, and mobile home park investor and operator. Now, let's turn it over to Ferd Neiman. Welcome back, Mobile Home Park Nation. Ferd Neiman here again, Dave, with another episode of the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast. Got a great guest for you today. He comes out of the single family flip and fix and flip business, but he's become a mobile home park owner operator as well. I'm going to tell us a little bit about a, about his story, his journey, and give you some uh, some pros and cons along the way. Please help me welcome my guest, Victor Alves. Victor, thanks for coming on, man. Uh, hey, Ferd. Uh, we're doing good. Uh, thanks for having me on the show. I'm, uh, I'm a listener, so I'm always a, it's been a pleasure to be to be here talking to you today. Hey, no problem, man. Glad glad to hear your story. And as, as you know, a lot of our audience are mobile home park owner operators like yourself, but a lot of them are not yet. They are hopefully going to be inspired by your story, right? Is how to yeah. go from one business. There's some similarities. I used to do single family myself and duplex, and there's some similarities um, along the way. And then there's some some new challenges and then <laughs> some new benefits. I think the MHP business is a little more complicated, um, yeah. but it can be more fruitful as well. So tell us a little more about right. your background and your story. Sure. Yeah. So, um, so I'm originally born and raised in Brazil. I came to the U.S. to uh, on a tennis scholarship. I played D1 tennis in South Texas, uh, McAllen, Edinburgh area, and for y'all, some of you that are familiar. Um, then moved to uh, San Antonio on a sales position. Worked for sales for about a a year or two, um, and then I got you know a little bit of a transition on my visa with my employer. And so we kind of, you know, my wife dragged me to a, you know, two day, three day seminar about flipping houses. And next thing you know, you're flipping houses. <laughs> and so we bought into a coaching program, did that for, you know, you know, basically like just that till end of 2019. Then we were kind of got introduced to the MHP space. Um, and at the same time, we were kind of like looking at multifamily. And so when I got introduced by one of my lenders, he just, you know, I was like, man, this is like, this looks like a great industry to be a part of. And so I was like, then the more I got, you know, studying about it, the more I'm like, okay, there's a lot of more nuances in this business than, you know, in a regular like single family or even a multifamily uh, type of business. So then I was like, so we got that learning, you know, got some more coaching in this and, you know, fast forward to, um, Last year, we ended up buying, um, you know, three parks with about 109 lots total, um, you know, and, you know, we're, we're fooling back in the game. And then we also have a property management company that we opened in 2022 with the vision of like, okay, we have clients on the single family and small multifamily space that, you know, for people that we've worked with before, but we mainly built it to be able to manage our, our portfolio um, as we grow in in MHP space. Yeah, that's cool, man. Yeah. It's definitely more nuances. I agree in MHP. And then what's interesting is multifamily is generally more competitive. So it's like, you, you, you know, MHP is a little less competitive. You can hopefully get a little better deal, but it's yeah. not for the faint of heart. Right. So there's a big, big learning <laughs> curve. I think, I think, so I think self-management is the way to go um, yeah. at least at the beginning till you learn. So for your management company, do you intend to also do third-party management or for on the multi on the uh, mobile home park side, or, or is it just building the kind of the framework and backbone for your own portfolio expansion? 
Yeah, we we actually do third party management um, for single family and small multis, and we actually added a client last year too, towards the end of the year, um, that has a small like ten sites uh, mobile home park uh, nearby. Uh, but mostly, like the the idea behind it was, you know, if we can get third party clients, it's great. You know, that helps us, you know, fuel an income to be able to build a team to to manage our our parks and then it's vice versa benefits right so we have our own like i say like as 75 percent of our portfolio that we manage right now is our own um our own stuff and so we get to test things out and then just apply the good stuff that goes to the the clients you know portfolio so we get to do the mistakes and you know just pass along the good stuff no, that's, I mean, that's great. I mean, it's part of the teamwork aspect of it too. I mean, that's part of, I like the legal practices. There's a lot of stuff I can learn from my clients too. We just, we mostly do MHP. We just closed a couple of really complicated, large scale apartment <laughs> complexes. And it's like, oh man, you got ticks and 1031s and you got PINs and you know, it's acronym soup. Right. And then, mm-hmm. and then there's $40 million and you got a bridge lender and you got, it's like, man, this is this is kind of complicated. We need to make sure we're getting all this together. Right. So it's good. And some of that stuff, some of those uh, more nuanced strategies are, are more rare in the MHP space. So it's nice to be able to dip our toe in. And I'm, I've done third-party management on the MHP side uh, for several years as well. Don't do very much of it. Um, I personally yeah. don't like it as much, but, um, <laughs> but you, you know, I got some sharp clients, right? So they yeah. learn from them and vice versa. So that's cool. Yeah. Same so what, what, was, what was the main motivation to make the jump? And then to, uh, tell us about that, that transition. Cause it's, it's a lot of people in our industry. I feel like do that. They come from the single family business and eventually a lot of them get tired of flipping houses. Cause it's like, you do one and you got, you make money and you got to do, you got to find another one. You got to do it again. Yeah. As it put it. And it's, it's yeah. definitely not passive and, and it's not yeah. as certain for the future, but is that your motivation or what, what, what tell us your, your journey? Yeah. So I think, you know, there's, there's a couple, one was like a, a partnership, um, you know, termination or ending. Um, that's one of the, the triggers um, there, but like really was the inconsistency of, you know, cash flow, right. Um, we had, you know, we were, we were buying for like three years straight, like about 36 houses a year. Like, so th- those are acquisitions and we were selling a lot of those houses, you know, as well. So you have a lot of transactions, a lot of projects, which, you know, I'm not a big fan of construction. Um, I thought I could handle it, but I don't, don't really like it uh, <laughs> as much. And the other part of it is, you know, the, the, so the biggest thing for me was the inconsistency on cash flow. And it's a big output of cash. Like you have a fixed amount of money that's going out, you know, basically every month in marketing and staff and, you know, and rehabs. You know, but you you might not have a project closing every month. You know, it might go like two months without it, and then you have like one month that closes four houses. So it's just a very inconsistent part of the business. And I was like, when I got to the MHP space, I was like, the first thing that really got me excited was the fact that you know you could just rent the land. And I was like, I don't have to fix a home. That's amazing. (laughs) Right. That's like, that was the, 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 the first light bulb. And then, you know, then the kind of like understanding, you know, about the, you know, what you're doing for the affordable housing component of it, um, which is kind of like the, you know, warm and fuzzy uh, that I, I really like. And the fact that, you know, you could really, you know, 
find like find a more consistent cash flow and at a lot better entry price than you're getting in multifamily, right? You know, you you can pay, I don't know, depending on the state, like it's in, in San Antonio or, or Texas, I don't know, between thirty-five to fifty thousand the pad versus in, you know, in multifamily, you're paying like a hundred to 130 a unit, right? Uh, which is crazy. So that's one of really, that's kind of a few things I really enjoyed about, got me excited about the, the space. No, that makes sense. I mean, and as far as a per unit or per door, they talk about a lot in multifamily. I was having a discussion the other day because a lender was like, oh, you, we, we're getting this, we're getting 70,000 a unit for MHP in this particular market. And it's like, that's, that felt like a lot. Cause it's like, well, it's a going by the per unit cost. It's, it's, you know, to me, it's a more simplistic metric as you know, it's like, yeah. cause obviously what if it's, I, mean, I just bought a park for like 8,000 a unit. Right. But it's, yeah. what, did I just get a good deal? Well, I got a pretty good deal, but no, part of it's a function of it's 40% occupancy yeah. <laughs> and the NOI is low. Right. So it's, you know, if you use cap rate or you use run sort of some yeah. sort of scattered cash flow analysis, like it's a more, it's a more sophisticated analysis. It's like, well, mm-hmm. a unit's not a unit where in multifamily, you know, a unit's not a unit, but they're kind of similar because most multifamily are going to be 90% yeah. plus rented. Now they may have yeah. below market rents. They may need, they may have the ability to upgrade the units, sure. push rents, you know, but for the most part, it's not 40% occupied where a lot of MHP, especially buy from mom and pop older parks, they might be 20, 30, 40, 50%. And that's, which is obviously going to distort your per door yeah, or per, exactly. per lot. I mean, but it's, it doesn't mean you're, you know, 8,000 a lot is a home run of a deal if it's worth only 8,000 a lot. Right. Yeah, so. exactly. Yeah. I think, I think that's one of the things that, you know, on MHP, you know, that's, that's funny because, you know, you could have, you know, like a very low price per lot because you have a lot of vacant lots. Right. And if you don't have, you know, it's, it's very different in the multifamily, right? That's one of the biggest nuances that, that we're learning that kind of like took us some time to learn is that, you know, a unit is a unit. The unit is there. There's no, you don't have to bring anything there. All you do is lease it, right? Maybe renovate it and lease it. And at a vacant site, you know, you have to bring a home or somebody has to bring a home there. So that site is not really like doing you any good until, uh, a home is there so i think like to your point is like the cost per uh per pad or per site is you know is somewhat irrelevant to a point you know um depending on how the the the, the park is run ran yeah it's just a more of an imperfect metric and it's yeah it's, it, with the benefit of course of mhp is you can take a park that's got 50 vacant sites and you can add homes there where you just can't do that in multifamily. It's just, you're not yeah. going to, you're not going to add a second story on a one story <laughs> apartment complex. Right. And you're, and you're, and generally your, your land coverage ratio is already to a certain portion. You can't build adjacent either. So it's, you got what you got. So that's one of the reasons yeah. it's attractive me to MHP as well. So yeah. what was, what were, tell us what some of the, the easier and some of the harder steps through the transition obviously if you're already doing flips you're already understanding construction managing a crew budgets a lot of that stuff but so that to me that i was presuming that would be the easier stuff um to transition over but then there's lots of other things infrastructure otherwise it may have been foreign yeah i i think like you know the like locking down you know the capex improvements for me was a little bit easier especially because the parks are close to home so like they're all kind of around here so Mm -hmm. i can use a lot of my original 
crews and people that I've used. So that's been, uh, that, that was, that's been an easy transition. I think the other part too, since, you know, we did manage, uh, a few section eight and a few other, um, lower income, um, housing, um, types, like it, we kind of understood the, the, the clientele a bit. The main, the main difference is that, you know, you have to kind of feel, feel the demographics of who you're dealing with. Cause you have a park in Uvalde that is like a lot of like older folks there. It's not like a 50 plus community, but like there's a lot of older people there. So, you know, getting them to understand to pay online or do stuff like that, that was a, a fun challenge, <laughs> you know, <laughs> a call every single day of like, Hey, how do I do this? I got locked out. Or how do I, you know, we actually had to have a two day, uh, event that I call it that we were, went there to the community and like everybody came and just like, we just set them up on their phone. Cause they don't have a computer, don't have phones and told them like, Hey, this is how you see the bill. This is how you pay the bill. Here's your setup, your bank account. You know, here's your credit card. If you want to have a credit card and then you get to choose when they pay. Took a good, you know, three months to get everybody in sync, but now it's uh it's pretty, uh, it's pretty good. Now our, our park in San Antonio or the one closer to San Antonio, we had a lot of, um, I'd say like a more younger crowd, um, not too young, but like, you know, more tech savvy. And mm-hmm. those were like super easy to, um, to, to, tr- to transition into that. Um, I think one of the biggest things for us um, also is we have the San Antonio city water, city sewer, uh, all the other two are, um, septic and seawater and so understanding a little bit of the maintenance we always scope the lines to check the sewer lines and everything i think one of the things that we've added to our uh, list is to actually have like a septic company come and uh, you know check professional septic company come and check the septic uh, tanks and stuff like that because we had one community that three months in and we we like already pumped like five of the of the of the tanks, yeah. tanks right and so which you know it's nothing wrong with a tank but it's just like you know if i had probably sent somebody out there to check i could have probably got that negotiated into the right before i closed but um um or just knew that that's coming up the pipe uh but yeah i think that's you know for us really has been to um, understand infill as well. So it took a while to find good priced homes that made sense to bring into the community, right? Cause we didn't have a lot of vacancy. So, um, our San Antonio park, you know, had like one vacant and then our, uh, one in Potid also had one vacant and then our one Uvalde, we developed four new pads, which is, which was, pretty cool and at that a lot easier um than what i was expecting with the city itself and so um but yeah we got that uh taken care of so then we have like four vacant lots that we have to infill and i'm like i i can't find good good homes we finally got uh this last month found like you know some nicely priced homes that we're going to be you know, that we bought and we're going to be taken to the park, but it's just a, a tough, a tougher situation, especially when you can't, when your park does not qualify for the 
programs, right? Cat, the, you know, the cash program or the legacy program, you know, cause they're too small. Yeah, that's, that is definitely, that is definitely a challenge and it's harder in today's environment than it has been, at least in, in my short career in the space is, you know, it's harder to find used homes and used homes at good pricing. And then for the new homes, if you're a new player or a small player, it's like you can barely get the attention of the factories and you got long wait times. And then if you do get the attention of the factories, it's hard to get approved by the financial institutions because they, they don't see it being worth their effort. Like, oh, you got five pads. I don't care. Um, yeah. I've had that problem on some parks where I'm already, I'm already in the programs. I'm already approved. I've done dozens and dozens of homes with these guys. And they're like, well, but this new park only has 10 vacant. I'm like, okay, I'll sell you 10. <laughs> let, me, let me do 10. And then I also got 10 park owned homes. I can do 20. I mean, we're looking at 20 transactions. They're like 20 transactions is nothing. They're like, well, we'll put you on the back of the list. We'll get you in a couple months. You know, like, yeah. come on guys. I've, I've made you guys millions of dollars here. Millions of dollars of loans. And they're like, well, yeah. You know, we don't, yeah. so it's, so it's, it's definitely, I, I feel that even myself, it's a pain point with some of the lenders. Like if you don't have, if you don't need a hundred homes first tranche, they're like, yeah, we don't care. It's yeah. like, what? I mean, it's hard to, even if you find a park <laughs> that has a hundred vacancies, that's a pretty, uh, pretty bold move to uh, bring a hundred in at once. I'd, I'd like to, yeah. you know, do five or 10 and see if yeah. I can sell them in this market, you know, cause that's, I mean, we all learn whether you go to Frank Roth's boot camp or other, you learn to, you know, test the market beforehand and do a test market the problem with the test ad is it's just a test ad you don't you don't know yet who your customer is what their credit is you're not running their credit you're not seeing if they follow through you're not seeing the stability of their employment so you Mm -hmm. can't fully test demand Mm -hmm. you know on facebook marketplace the month before you buy it you can get a general test for demand but so that that is definitely a infill is one of i think one of the most important from a value add perspective but also one of the most challenging components of this industry a hundred percent yeah i think like, I, I you know i tell this all the time i much rather buy a park with a bunch of park owned homes but they're there and i convert them into tenant owned homes than to have like you know uh you know 50 percent vacancy which again is where you add the most value but have you know have to bring in a ton of homes um you know i have to go shopping for that it's yeah. it's not it's not as fun <laughs> yeah fair enough no, right, well, no, that definitely makes sense as a transition point. Um, yeah. What What are some of the things, that, other things maybe been easier than you expected or, or just other tips you can give to people who are trying to follow in your footsteps here? Yeah, I think, you know, um, one of the things that um, I was talking to somebody the other day was that, you know, just understand your what you're going to be improving in the property and budget for that and add some, you know, buffers into those things I feel a lot of times, you know, you might be eager to get into something and you just, you know, say like, okay, like I can, you know, use the cash flow or, you know, do, do something else. Like just make sure that you're budgeting for those improvements and you're having, you know, enough operating income, you know, to, in case things go, go awry. Right. So I think that's the, uh, it doesn't go as planned let's call it. Um, so that's one of the things that I feel like is very important. And one thing that I, that I brought on a lot coming from doing it, you know, over a hundred flips is that like, if there's something that can go wrong, it probably will go wrong, you know? <laughs> yes. And yeah. So, uh, so yeah, just be, just be pre- prepared for that and have enough on your, on your budget. And I think, you know, the, the most important thing is just find good people around, around you. Right. You know, We've, we've worked together on you helping us, you know, we're actually talking about the, 
RV leases and things like that. Um, I think like find good people that are in the industry and, and, you know, you can surround yourself that, um, that, that will, that will help you be able to, you know, with more ease and confidence, get into the space if you're not in the space and also with more ease and confidence scale, right? Cause once you get in, you know, if you like it, like, you know, I do, uh, even more now that we're in it, um, is like, you know, on the scaling process is like, okay, when you get, you know, figure out, okay, what do you need to, to scale? What are the, some of the nuances and things that you need and who is, who's your backup call if you don't know the answer or, you know, um, that's where, that's what's really important, at least to me. No, I think that makes sense. I mean, I, when I was doing single family, I remember learning that from seminars that was build your power team, right? And you got a bunch of people on your power team and um, that makes sense. I mean, I want to, I want to mention the RV leases because you brought that up. Um, I've had a lot of people asking about that lately. There's a lot more people, you know, it's so hard to find homes right now that people are saying, Hey, can, can I fill, fill my lots with RVs? And it's a different animal. You can run an RV in a mobile home park, just generally just like in a mobile home. So, okay, I'll rent it to you for a year, skirt it, deck it. You're basically a smaller mobile home, but some cities, don't see it that way. They see it as an RV. They see it as a transient guest and they won't let you do it. Or they, or they use it as a way to neuter your grandfather rights on MHP. So it, we, we always try when we do our zoning letters to get a permission for both RV and MH in the park, but it doesn't always work. Sometimes they just say, no, not, not at all. Um, I see other people doing a lot of um, RVs in mobile home parks, but running them like RV parks. So the short, even by the night, by the week, by the month, more amenitized, you, you know, utilities included, um, things of that nature. And you can do that. Certainly it's just a different, it's a little bit of a different animal from an operation standpoint. And then mm-hmm. you gotta be cognizant of city regs and you gotta be cognizant of what's your exit strategy from a lending perspective. I looked to buy a park a couple of well, it's been probably been almost a year ago or more now in the Kansas City market. And it was like 30% RV. And the lots were small, so they had to be RV. So I, mm-hmm. I know why the guy did RV, but I looked at it like I can't, I couldn't get the regular loan on it because the bank was discounting that RV income. So my my net loan was going to be like fifty five percent. It's like, well, based on that, I can't pay the same price because I'm not getting the same, you know, same leverage return. So I went back and forth, and we couldn't get even within hundred or two hundred thousand dollars of price because. I couldn't get the same debt and there was a disconnect between me and the seller on that. But that's something that I don't know if he had contemplated at the time. Like, look, I might not be able to get my sales price because my buyer pool is going to be restrained, uh, restricted uh, because of this particular constraint with the lending environment. Yeah. No. And, that, and I think that's a good point. I think you're bringing up the, the loans. I think, you know, a lot of times it's important for you to realize, um, what lenders and if you're if it's your first time you know i usually say like this is the first my first loan was also done this way it was like use a broker that you know focuses on mhp you know because they'll find you the lenders and they'll walk you through the steps and figuring out and then you know go talk to some local banks if you're doing smaller stuff um because you know you can you can typically like you know save a little bit in the costs but you know also build that relationship a little bit stronger with uh, with the bank, but, you know, it's just understanding the financing, right. Uh, are they giving you some credit? Cause some, some lenders will give you some credit on vacant pads. Some of them will give you credit on the RV income. Some won't, 
And so just understanding kind of, you know, how each one of these different lenders that you have on your, you know, power team, right. Operates is a big, is a big thing because, you know, it can go from you getting, you know, 75% loan to getting, like you said, a 55% loan, which totally changes your, your returns. Yes, absolutely. And I've had it happen before where the lender comes in lower than I expected and I'm already in, in the middle of my due diligence. It's like, well, I can't, I can't really renegotiate price because my lender caused a problem. Right. And yeah. so the seller's like, that's not my problem. And I'm like, well, it's going to be your problem. But I can't close. And they're like, well, don't close. It's like, oh, crap. You know? So that's, you know, part of the risk and you, you know, you live and learn, hopefully you get smarter along the way. But mm-hmm. I think that's one thing that a lot of people just don't think about is what's the next, what's the exit strategy. I had a, I had a mentor at one point, he bought a, he bought a second home and it was a really big, really nice, really expensive home. And he's like, yeah, I bought it for pennies on the dollar. And I think he bought it for like 60 cents on the dollar. And because the economy had crashed in like 07, 08, well then his business hit it kind of went in the tank and he's like, I can't afford the second. It's like a 6,000 foot second home. He's like, I can't afford the second home on three acres of lakefront and all this. Well, he didn't really have an exit strategy because that size in this market, that size home, and that it only a small fraction of the population could afford that size home for a second home. And those that could recognize there were 10 other ones in the same neighborhood that were in foreclosure. So they weren't going to pay retail price for his when they could buy the one next door for 60 cents mm-hmm. on the dollar. So he's like, you know, I made a big mistake. I, I thought because I bought it right. I was golden, but then I spent more money and I fixed up and I needed to, and then I, I was going to sell it at the same discount. And it was like, I did all this work to it and everything. And he just, he didn't think about the exit plan. So I always yeah. kind of remembered that. And, and for me on mobile home parks, the exit is what's the preliminary exit. What's this thing going to refinance at and how, and, or what's this going to sell at and how, and who's my buyer and what kind of financing can they get if they need it? And if you don't, and that's where the private, you know, you sept, I've got a park with septic, you know, but septic is an, a component of that is mm-hmm. probably going to have a higher exit cap because there's, there's more risk. There's more uh, operating expense. There's more, you know, regulatory environment that could go wrong on private utilities. So that's okay. You just, but mm-hmm. it's okay. If it's into your analysis, it's not okay. Yeah. If it wasn't in your analysis and you get surprised, <laughs> You know, you don't want to get surprised in this business, right? Exactly. Uh, yeah. People do it all the time. I know. I agree with you. I think especially on you know, when you're underwriting, you can get like, you know, it's it's so easy to underwrite, um, ha- have a happy underwriting model. Like, you know, it's it, especially if you start, like, especially when you're newer and you're looking at stuff and you're like, really want to get in the business. It's so easy for you to like, oh, maybe like I can increase the rent, you know, 20 bucks the second year. And then their number is just like, whoa, like changes like crazy or like, hey, maybe, you know, my exit cap is not, uh, you know, eight is like a six. Let's see, you know, and it's so easy for you to do that just to, you know, uh, just to make yourself feel feel good about it. But like you said, like we, when we were underwriting our stuff is like we look at obviously like it's a, re- a refi within three to five years. That's kind of what we look at. And then hold it for longer term like till 10 kind of where the model ends um but we always look to like if we need to sell this thing within five years what does that look like right you know because there's always that exit um component that you want to have in case you need it and also understanding your loan when does it balloon because you know 
you need to make sure that you're you're following through with you know with with that part of the plan because if you have a loan that balloons in three years you know you better chop chop on your whatever your capex is so you can refinance quickly or sell if you're doing one at 10 you have a little bit more you know wiggle room if things don't go as planned so especially with interest rates and the economy well yeah yeah, they're right there's 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 so many variables that you can't control that -hmm. you got to try to get right the ones you can and or have have reasonable assumptions i've had i've looked at performers from clients that i'm like wait a second you're gonna do what you're gonna you're gonna refinance i had a guy two days ago said well the the seller who's also a broker told me i can refinance after 90 days with the local bank and take my cash out and i was just like i wouldn't bet on that um <laughs> i couldn't get that loan and this is your first park so i doubt you can get that loan and you know sellers are liars and brokers are liars so don't believe them right but like yeah. don't base your assumption on this rose-colored scenario and i see people all the time oh we're, we're going to do a 80 percent cash out after six months we'll have all the equity back and then and then we're going to make a bunch of money as a promoter i'm like I don't, what if you I ask them the same thing? Like, what if that doesn't work? What if you can't get your cash out? What if they tell you it's a 65% LTV? Well, now you're not going to get that extra 15% until you sell, which you've got in your model at year 10, which means you're eating ramen noodles for a while because you're not going to get your GP share out of the deal because you can't cover the PREF or you can't cover these other hurdles. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, it's easy to be the second set of eyes on a performer, right? And poke holes in them. But yeah, what we need to do is, you know, as, as you know, buyers and borrowers is be the first set of eyes and poke our own holes in them so that yeah. we don't get ourselves uh, in trouble. But it, it is, you're right. It is a temptation. And, and I've said this before just on here in Microsoft Excel, no one's ever crafted a pro forma that ends in bankruptcy. <laughs> but in real life, that is true. people go into bankruptcy and every one of those guys or gals had pro formas that showed this return, you know, especially yeah. if they're raising money, Oh, it's going to do this. And it's, it's always a big number, right? It's always up. Yeah. It's always like, Oh yeah. Our trust is conservative, but <laughs> some portion of the population files bankruptcy, but yeah. we don't, no one wants to talk about that on the front end. Yeah. It's like, you need to be, you need to be paranoid about that. In my opinion. No, that, that is true. You know, uh, I had one of my, uh, you know, uh, mentors that has been the lender for me, you know, in the single family for a while is that, you know, he, he says like, you, you have to look at, especially depending on the stage in your life is like, you know, can I recover from whatever I'm putting myself in the situation of, right? So if you, you know, don't, which means he's saying don't overstretch yourself, but he's like, you know, if you put yourself in this situation, if you buy this property, if you do this, and it doesn't go as planned. Can you recover from it? You know, it goes like goes to complete crap, right? Can you sustain, you know, whatever you need to sustain? And that's a question that, you know, a lot of people don't ask yourself and it's easy too, because, you know, you don't want to think about the worst case scenario, but you know, you're, you're an attorney. So that's kind of what people pay you to do sometimes yeah. is to like, <laughs> like, Hey, what are the worst things that could happen, you know, in this, in this situation and partnerships, you know, one of the biggest things that I tell when you're getting into partnerships with anybody is just like have me with an attorney and have him like grind you on all the things that you can do to hate each other. And if you get out of that meeting and you're still happy with being a partner with that person, then go for it. 
if if you have a little bit of gut in your stomach that you maybe shouldn't don't do it <laughs> yeah no i just i just finished reading a book the other day and he, he talks about it from a hiring perspective he says from hiring and in business and in life it's either definitely yes or definitely no there's no in between and if the answer is not definitely yes it is definitely no so partnerships, <laughs> partnerships, that's, that's definitely one of them. Hiring somebody is definitely, if you're not, if you're not sold, I give the example, you know, um, an old girlfriend told me this, like uh, for a lot of women to go shopping, they try it on in the store. And he said, she said, if you don't look at it in the mirror on the store and think that it just makes you look beautiful, it's never going to look better than today. So you better not buy it. Cause when, cause <laughs> tomorrow, when you take it home and you try it on, you're going to be like, Oh, maybe not today. And you'll put it back in your closet five years from now. You're gonna have a bunch of shirts and dresses that you've never worn because you were like, so hey, I'll just buy it. I'm sure. I'm sure to look better when I do my makeup or I'm sure to look better when I'm whatever. And it's like, if you don't, if you don't love it in the store, you're not gonna love it later. And, and that's how I feel about hiring people or about yeah. a partnership, like, or even a deal. Like if I don't love it, we looked at deal the other day and, we were almost there. I mean, we were, we were relatively close and then somebody else was hired and we did it. They did kind of a little mini call for offers and we ran the numbers again. Like, I don't know that I want this deal anymore, you know, at this mm -hmm. price. And my dad used to oversee construction at a bank and they were, they were building a relatively large bank in our, our small town. So all the who's who of contractors wanted to bid on it. And dad knew the guy that won the bid. He went to high school with him or something. He called him and said, Hey, congratulations. Uh, you're going to get the bid for the, the new bank. And instead of being excited, the contractor said, I wonder what I missed. Cause he's like, <laughs> well, he's like a group of my peers all refused to do the pro refused to do this project for the price that I just committed to do it on. Maybe they're greedier than me, or maybe they estimated 800,000 for the vault. And it's, and it's, and I estimated 500,000 and it's really 800,000 and things like that. Yeah. And maybe I missed something and I'm not, you're, you're always kind of half excited and half nervous. And that's how I was thinking about that deal the other day. It's like, if I win this bid, I'm not going to be that excited about it. And if I'm not that excited yeah. today, I'm not going to be more excited when I'm actually working on it, you know, and yeah. under due diligence and all this. So I thought that was yeah. a kind of a that good analogy. A, from that's a past. great analogy. Yeah. Great, great analogy. Cause yeah, if you don't like it now, chances you're going to like it later is very, very minimal. <laughs> yeah, rarely in your due diligence or in your operations, you you'd be like, I didn't think of that. And it's better than I expected. Like, it doesn't happen very often. Right. So that's, that's like, you, you know, you can, as much as you try to be conservative in your, your assessment, it's like, there's always this like emotional, I want this deal. And then it's like, you got to take the emotion out of it and exactly. just use the logic. That's true. That's very, very true. Yeah, good stuff. Well, Victor, any other tips or tricks you want to share before we jump? Um, no, I think, uh, you know, uh, just, just make sure that you're, you're surrounding yourself with good people, uh, that can help you, uh, whenever, whenever is needed. And, uh, yeah, just get into the business. You know, I love this business and, um, I want to see good people getting into them. So for those who are listening. All right. Great, man. Appreciate it. Hey, where, where can people find you before we go? Yeah. So, uh, Facebook, you can look me up Victor Alves, or you can, you can email me, uh, Victor at Vecino capital, which is a V E C N O the word capital.com. Uh, or in our website, vecinocapital.com. That's pretty much it. All right. Thanks, Victor. Appreciate it. Uh, thanks for it. You've been listening to the mobile home park lawyer podcast with Ferd Neiman. 
Ready to learn more? Go to www.themobilehomelawyer.com for free resources and materials to help you succeed. If you love the podcast, go to Apple Podcasts, give us your review, and subscribe today. Thank you for listening. Neither the Supreme Court of Missouri nor the Missouri Bar reviews nor approves certifying organizations or specialist designations. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely upon advertisements.